Good morning, everybody. My name is Hao Ran, if you haven't met me, or uh, if you don't recognize me when I'm slightly dressed up. Um, welcome to Marsville Community Church. Um, before we dig into God's Word, how about we pray and ask God to help us? Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your Word. We thank you that it's rich and it's glorious and it teaches us uh, and says, sometimes says things that we don't want to hear but things we need to hear. Father, would you help us to come to your word with open hearts and open minds? Would you help us to receive it as it is, which is your words, your words to us? Would you help our hearts to be soft, our ears to be open? Holy Spirit, would you help us understand the words that we read? And Father, would you help us to change where we need to change, to be convicted where we need to be convicted? Would you help me to speak clearly? And would you help um, all of us to grow together um, as your body, the church? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was the worst house that I've ever lived in. It's the worst house that we have ever lived in. Uh, it was a number of years ago, about 11 or 12 years ago, uh, and Sarah and I were quite convicted that we needed to move a lot closer to the church that we were going to. Uh, so uh, we actually moved into... Uh, Boree Street, which is actually five minutes down the road. We're going to a different church at the time, but in this area. And it was difficult. I don't know if you've experienced the Sydney rental market, but the Sydney rental market can be a little bit brutal. Now, to compound the matter was the fact that actually we were in an interesting situation. So we just finished three years of Bible college, and so I didn't have any recent uh, employment history. We'd been living in a place that we'd owned, and so we didn't have any recent rental history. And so, without any recent rental history or employment history, you go to a real estate agent, a lot of them laugh at you. And so, uh, we had to settle when we were looking for a place to live. Now, the place in Boree Street, it was a little bit run down. It was a bit old. Uh, we walked in. The carpet looked really ratty. Uh, so, we, it was old. It was a bit run down. And, uh, but when we were inspecting the house, Frank, the real estate agent, said, oh, look, if you guys move in, what we'll do is we'll rip up the carpet uh, we'll polish the floorboards back, it'll be really nice. And surprisingly, perhaps, depending on your experience of real estate agents, surprisingly, Frank, the real estate agent, was as good as his word. We moved in, uh, they'd ripped up the carpet, so they polished the floorboards back, and it looked great. And so we were there in that house in Boree Street. Four months later, we discovered the deep and dark secret of that house. Um, so our children are still quite young, right? So Michael would have been three, Lee would have been one, still sitting in a, in a child seat when we we're having dinner. I think we we're having dinner, maybe lunch. Uh, and I think she'd thrown something on the ground. So I'd, you know, got on my knees to grab it off the ground, looked up, and underneath the dining table, I saw it was completely covered in mold. And as we started to look, we found that all the undersides of the, of the dining chairs were all moldy. We started to look around the house, um, a whole bunch of clothes were moldy, my old jackets were moldy. This really nice leather jacket that Sarah had bought in Italy uh, gone moldy. And most horrifically for me, right, this is the one that still scars me, I think, um, the cot of our, the wooden cot of our one-year-old daughter, Leah, was moldy. And, you know, you clean up the mold, it keeps coming back, you clean up the mold, it keeps coming back. My, my brother-in-law was like, oh, you can just sand it back. No, it just kept coming back. It was all the way in, in, the, in, the, mold, in, in the cot. See, it turns out that the carpets of the house were hiding this deep, dark 
secret. So the house sat on a hill, but underneath the house was a bit of a divot. So the water ran down, pulled underneath the house, and what does stagnant water do? It breeds mold. Uh, we actually uh, paid our own money to get a mold inspector to come in, look underneath the house, and he's like, oh, mate, it is like the colours of the rainbow down there, which in other, in other contexts would be lovely, but underneath the house, not so much. So you see, but what had actually happened, who knew, was that the carpet had actually acted as a barrier, and all the mould sitting under the house had just sort of sat there for years and years and years and years, ripped up the carpet, and the mould just started coming up through the floorboards, and just, it was mould everywhere. It was scary, it was dangerous, it was toxic, it was bad for our health. Now, the Bible says that we all have a problem, and it is more contagious, more toxic, more dangerous to our health, to our spiritual health, than mould. And it's hidden underneath the carpet and the floorboards of our heart. And that problem is called sin. So today's sermon is going to be a bit full on, and I want to flag that in advance, because we are going to talk about sin. But as we talk about sin, we also want to talk about the solution to the problem of sin. And so we're going to be talking about the forgiveness of sin, which is, I think, one of the most amazing blessings of the Christian faith. And so today's sermon, we are going to go through the valley in order to get to the mountain. We're going to go from the darkest of nights to get to the brightest of days. And I want to tell you this at times, because it will be difficult, but the destination will be worth it. Now, I don't know everyone here. I don't know where you are at with your journey with God. Um, If you're here and you're not a Christian, then I'm glad you're here. And although this sermon's primarily for Christians, hopefully it helps you see why Christians keep banging on about Jesus and about forgiveness, because it is so good. It's one of the core beliefs of the Christian faith, and it's, as I've talked to people this week, it's actually quite unique. I was talking at work about forgiveness, and uh, I was talking to my Catholic friend about it, and uh, the Hindu guy at work was like, this sounds like an alien concept, because in, oh sorry, Buddhism, in Buddhism, he's like, forgiveness just doesn't exist in in Buddhism, right? It's a Christian thing, forgiveness. And I think it's something that's so profound and so valuable that money cannot buy it. It is the joy, it is the blessing of Christianity. And so... Let's, let's talk about forgiveness and sin. If you're the sort of person who takes notes, there are four points in today's outline, uh, and I don't have a clicker, so thank you. Four points. Uh, we're going to talk about forgiveness and sin. We're going to talk about forgiveness and silence. We're going to talk about forgiveness and sal- salvation. And then we're going to talk about forgiveness and celebration. So, let's start. Psalm 32, verse 1. Uh, you might like to have your Bibles open to Psalm 32. We're going to stay a lot in there quite a lot, uh, but the verse will come up on the screen behind me as well. Verse 1 begins like this. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now, we're going to spend some time talking about sin and forgiveness. Let's spend a time thinking about what sin, thinking through what sin really is. Now, we often think about sin as doing bad things. After all, we do have the Ten Commandments, Right? Do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. And by definition, murdering or stealing or sleeping with somebody not married to you, well, that is sin. But it's also broader than that. So let me give you three things to help you broaden your definition of sin. Sin is more than things that we do. It's also things that we fail to do. You may be familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man walks down the road, gets beaten up, gets left for dead. Now, eventually... 
Eventually, in the good part of the story, the Good Samaritan comes and saves him. But before he does, there are two people. And these are two people who should have known their Bibles. Um, and the, the, a priest and a Levite, and they walk past and they don't even try to help. These two people should have known better because Jesus reminds us all the way back in Leviticus, God says this, love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. The priest and Levite, they should have known their Old Testament, they should have known that. But the problem isn't something that these two guys did, right? It's something that these two guys didn't do. They didn't help. They didn't love their neighbor. There's um, some older Christian traditions that have a really neat way of framing this, right? Like, we um, confess to God both our sins of commission and our sins of omission. The things we committed, the things we omitted to do. Because there is so much good that we fail to do. And I don't know about you, but this is the one that gets me, right? When I think about this, I think... So often, so often I should have been kind, but I wasn't. I should have been encouraging with my words, but I wasn't. I should have loved, but I didn't. I should have encouraged, but I kept silent. I did not always lay down my life for my wife. I did not always consider others better than myself. There's so many times I didn't love my neighbor like I ought. There's so many times I have not loved God, with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. Sin isn't more than just things we do, it's things we fail to do. It's like Paul says in Romans, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We fall short of the goodness that God expects from us. Now you may be asking, why do God's expectations matter? Because sin is more than just things we do, it's also a relational problem. See, did you notice something? When we looked at the Ten Commandments, we flip back to Exodus. Um, there was something really important before we got to the first commandment. Uh, I like to call it the zeroth commandment because uh, working in computer programming, you start counting at zero. The zeroth important. Um, it's the most important verse in Exodus 20. It is this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, the Ten Commandments, right, these are not just ten random laws given by some anonymous person. Rather, these are lovingly crafted directions for God's people by a loving saviour, God. It's like in our house. I might have a rule like this, which is no video games during the week. Not because video games are inherently bad, but because Monday to Thursday, at the very least, I want my children to do something productive, to learn, to study, to do their homework, to do something productive with their time. So how should I feel? How would you feel if you had this rule in your house and then you caught your son playing, sorry, son or daughter, um, playing video games during the week, would you feel upset? I feel, I have felt, I might feel a bit upset, right? Because here's the thing, this isn't a random rule that I just made up because I felt like it. This is a rule that I, that I made up because I designed to help him, right? And I'm not a random person who's given him this rule. I'm his father. And I don't want to over-spiritualize obedience to parents here, but in a certain sense, right, he has sinned against me. We have a relationship. I trusted him to use his computer without playing video games. He's broken faith. This is entirely hypothetical, by the way. But he's broken faith. And our God is infinitely wiser, infinitely kinder, infinitely better as a father than I am, right? God's rules for us are infinitely wiser, infinitely kinder, us and for all of humanity. And he is the God of the universe. 
He is the God who made us and formed us and shaped us. And he called us and he knew you by name before the creation of the world. And he saved you through Jesus Christ. And so when we sin, we sin against God. And our sin against God, well, that says something about our relationship with God. And so here's the third point, right? The reality is this. Sin is more than just things we do. Sin is essentially about our rebellion against God. You see, at the heart of sin is our heart. See, our heart is in rebellion to God. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't, the reason we don't do the good thing all the time, we don't do the right thing most of the time, is because we don't really want to do the right thing most of the time. The reason we fail to live God's way time and time and time and time again is because that rebellion, that sinfulness, lies hiding underneath the carpet and the floorboards of our hearts. So, thinking about sin. Sin is more than just things we do, it's things we fail to do. Sin is more than just things we do, it's a relational problem. Sin is essentially about our rebellion, our heart problem, our rebellion against God. And so with all of that in mind, thinking about sin, let's see what this psalm says. Let's get back into it. Verse 2. Verse 2. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I think what the psalmist is trying to describe is this problem, that the problem with sin, we feel guilty, right? We feel ashamed. Very rarely do we brag about our sin. More often than not, sin is something that happens in secret. We don't talk about it. We keep it covered up underneath the floorboards and the carpets of our heart. And this is the exact problem that the psalmist describes in verse 3, right? When I, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. And I think in a poetic way, the psalmist is talking about that guilt and shame consuming us. It's like inside, my bones are wasting my way, my strength is sapped, I just feel crushed by the weight of my sin. Have you ever felt like that? I mean... You might feel like nobody else knows. You might feel like you've gotten away with it. But if you're honest with yourself, God knows. If you're honest with yourself, you know. But did you notice verse 2? He's contrasting this, right? He's contrasting this idea of keeping silent. And on the other hand, he says, Well, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. In whose spirit is no deceit. And he's sort of saying that if you're still in this camp over here where we're keeping silent by admitting nothing, in reality, if we're honest with ourselves, we're deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves about our sin. We're telling ourselves it doesn't matter. We're telling ourselves that God doesn't care about the sin in our hearts. But like the mold hiding underneath the house, sin that is hidden in our hearts, it becomes toxic. It's dangerous. It's destructive. Now, here's the thing. Brothers and sisters, if that's you, you might feel like you're all on your own. You might feel like you're the worst person in the world. But brothers and sisters, we've all been there. The Apostle Paul says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Ecclesiastes, he said, there's no one righteous. There is no one who does what is right and never sins. Sometimes... 
We're all alone with our sin, and that makes us feel like we're too far away from God, and I'm too dirty, I'm too unclean, I'm too sinful, I'm too disgusting, I'm too small. He would want nothing to do with me. Friends, you need to know that. You need to know these things, right? That's not true. There is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing that can take us away from God's mercy. There is nothing that God cannot forgive. And I need you to know that you're not alone, right? There are no super holy people in this room. We have all sinned and fallen short. There's a particular temptation, I know, to look up at the preacher at the front and think that he's immune, that he's better. I'm not. We are not. We are all sinners. And so, Christians, you need to hold these three truths together. And the three truths that are hard to hold together, but that's why we need to try hard to hold them together. First of all, sin is normal, right? All people sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is normal, but, two, sin is never okay. Right? Although we do it, we all do it, it's not good. It is not the way things ought to be done. It, it still offends God. But, three, all sin can be forgiven. Right? Jesus is willing to forgive all your sin. He is able to forgive all of your sin. Sin is normal, but sin is never okay. But all sin can be forgiven. All you need to do is confess and be forgiven. So let's look at that now. Let's talk about forgiveness. Verse 5. Verse 5. Then, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave my sin. You forgave my sin. This is the great movement of this psalm. This is, this is the great doorway. We open up this door. We step from death into life. We step out of sin into forgiveness. All of that sin in us, all that heavy baggage that we've been carrying, we get to leave it. We get to leave it with God. We just need to confess our sins to the Lord. We need to be honest with him, honest with ourselves. Admit that we are sinful. Admit we need help. Admit that we need God to help us. And what will happen? Verse 5, you forgave the guilt of my sin. And God will forgive the guilt of your sin. And God will always forgive the guilt of your sin. That is, that is the eternal promise. And it's so important that we remember it every Easter. Right? Jesus went to the cross to carry away all of our sin, to pay everything, to pay everything that you and I owe, yesterday, today, forever. And so, friends, rejoice. The whiteboard where all your sins were recorded has been completely wiped clean. The book where all your sins were recorded has been tossed into the fire. You were losing the game 40-0, but the referee called the game off. The other team forfeited, you win. The 100-kilogram weight that was strapped to your back has fallen off. Your muddy clothes have been gone through the washing machine. They've been bleached to bright white. They're better than new. Christian, you are clean. You stand before God and you are forgiven. There is a reason why confession is called coming clean. Because when you kneel before God, when you, when you come clean, he makes you clean. No matter what you've done, no matter how guilty or ashamed you feel, no matter how real that feeling is, he still forgives you. No matter how you slip, no matter how you stumble, now or in the future, you can confess all these things to the God who loves you, the God who made you, the God who will always forgive you. 
Just take a deep breath. Breathe. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? All of this about forgiveness. Well, here's the thing. A life-changing event requires life-changing action. A life-changing event requires life-changing action. Becoming married was the second biggest change of my life uh, behind becoming a Christian. When I became married, that required a whole raft of changes. Right? It changed where I lived. It changed what I did when I came home from work. Right? I didn't just come home, flop on the couch, play video games. I came home and I talked to my wife. It changed what I ate. Right? Like, for instance, capsicum gives Sarah heartburn, so I don't put capsicum in my cooking anymore. Once upon a time, we, went, we had some issues with dairy, and so we had to put alternate cheese in our pizzas, and that's what I ate. And I didn't complain, most of the time. <laughs> it changed the movies I watched. It changes, changed the cars I drive, and vice versa. And that may not actually be what you expect, because, you see, in Sarah's defense, I've always sucked at driving manual cars. And so when we got married, Sarah had to get rid of her manual car, and we bought an automatic, because I'm useless. But you see, life-changing events, life-changing events require life-changing action. And some suggest at least two ways in which your life should change because you are forgiven. Two ways that your life should change. So I'm going to talk about the joy of forgiveness and we're going to talk about um, the teaching of forgiveness. Right? Because we're so aware of our forgiveness sins, because the forgiveness of sin should bring us such personal joy, the psalmist says, verse 1, I think there's a slide, sweet. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count, count against them. And then we jump to verse 11, right? What does he say? He says, rejoice in the Lord. Be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. What a blessing it is to be forgiven. And so we should rejoice. We should sing. If you've ever wondered why Christians sing so much in church, this is why. Because we have such an abundant blessing of forgiveness. It is a joy to be forgiven, and so sing about it. Sing at home, sing in your hearts. You are forgiven, you are free. Very soon we're going to sing a song, and the chorus goes, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Every time you sing that hallelujah, you are singing praises to God. Latch onto that, hold on to that as we sing. Hallelujah, it is good, praise God. He's forgiven my sins. But here's the second thing. So profound is the forgiveness, is forgiveness, that the psalmist is moved to action. And it's an encouragement to us, as a, encouragement to us to act as well. Listen to the psalmist's heart. There's a couple of verses. Look at verse 6. He says, this is the psalmist's heart after being forgiven. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. And then jump to verse 8. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. You might be hearing that and reading it. It sounds a little bit like a God saying it. I think it almost is the psalmist hearing God saying that to him and being taught and going, okay, now I need to be the one who goes and instructs and teaches people in the way they should go. The reason I think that is because he then goes on to say, verse 11, and this is the psalmist talking to all of Israel in song, and he says this. He says, verse 11, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. The psalmist is so moved by his experience of confession and repentance and forgiveness that he has to talk about it. He has to speak about it. He wants everyone, he wants you, he wants me to know. That's why he wrote the psalm. 
right? He wrote this psalm of his intensely personal experience about how he needed to be forgiven. And then he confessed, and then he was forgiven. And then he writes into a song for all of Israel to sing and for Christians to read for 2,000 years. Because this is a song we need to hear because he's trying to tell us, hey, it is so good. It is so good to be forgiven. It is amazing. And so we should follow the psalmist's example, right? If he's been so moved by this experience of being forgiven that he needs to go and tell everybody, shouldn't we also be doing that? Who can you tell about the joy that forgiveness brings? Because it's such a blessing to have our sins taken away. How can it, if this good news is so good, how can we keep it to ourselves? Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your neighbour. Jesus is good. He's taken my sin away. I no longer have to walk under all that guilt and shame. It's wiped clean. It's washed free. It's good. How can I not talk about it? Friends, a life-changing event requires life-changing action. And if your life has been changed because your sins have been given, then rejoice. I'm going to pray now. And as I pray, I want to give you a chance. I'm going to pause in a, little, in a couple of bits just to give you a chance. If there are things you need to confess in your life, if there are things you need to bring before God, why not do that now? <coughs> pray in your own hearts, pray in your own minds, but pray, please, to God. Um, I'm going to pray for, for me and for all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to confess to you that we are sinners. I am a sinner. We are sorry for the things that we have done. We want to confess to you the things that we are guilty of. And we want to confess to you the things that we have not done, things we sh- that, uh, the, things that, the good that we should have done but we didn't. And Father in heaven, thank you that we can bring all of this before you. Thank you that you are our loving Father who rescued us and saved us. And so thank you that we can be honest with you, even if no one else, we can confess to you the deepest, darkest secrets of our heart. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in Jesus we are forgiven. Thank you that... Through his bloodshed on the cross, we are forgiven. We are forgiven and free. And that we no longer have to walk under the weight of guilt and under the weight of shame. We no longer have to walk feeling that we are unclean and unworthy because you have made us clean. You have made us worthy. And so, Father, thank you. Help us to keep being thankful. Help us to rejoice. Thank you that forgiveness is an offer and freely on offer. And Father, we, um, we want to pray that you will help us to rejoice and to genuinely rejoice with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our soul to praise you. And Father, with such good news, help us not to keep silent. Help us to be bold and brave and to tell our friends about how good Jesus is, about the forgiveness that he has won for us. And we want to pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.